Good evening. You don't have to say good evening back, it's okay. <laughs> You're in silence. <laughs> You're also very quiet. <laughs> I mean, I didn't just mean silent, but this time in the retreat is a very sweet spot where we have left the busyness of our lives and settled in somewhat to the retreat. It's always delightful for us to come and sit here with you and it's like we get darshan. We get the, the waves of the benefits of your practice when we sit. So this evening I would like to talk about metta primarily Meta being the word for loving-kindness, friendship, and I'll touch on the quality of compassion also, since they're intimately related. And I'll be talking both about the formal practice of metta, which we've been doing a little bit of the last couple of days, but more really the essence and the quality and the attitude of this quality of heart and love. So one way I like to think of, understand the Buddha's teaching is it's a movement, it's a path from suffering to freedom, from unwholesome, painful, difficult states of mind and heart, ways of being, to more easeful, more um, to less suffering, to states of ease and compassion and clarity and ease and wisdom. And there's an expression I like that I heard from the Zen tradition that said that Zen, uh, one definition of Zen is appropriate response. And I like to think of this practice of mindfulness as that too. It's an appropriate response. And the same with metta. Metta is this quality of metta, of love and mindfulness when they're, conju- when they're joined is really you know, the ultimate appropriate response to a moment. That's really where I want to go this evening. So I want to start with a story from, uh, from a book by Ram Dass. Here in a neonatal intensive care unit, you see incredible beauty and unbearable pain, and you have to figure out how to be with both. The children are beautiful because you just get to know them. You can't nurse them, you can't really nurse them without knowing them. And you can't know them, really know them without seeing their beauty. What can be more beautiful than innocence? And that affects all their features, their tininess, the eyes, the fingers, the sound of their heart. Just their breath can move you with its beauty. Part of it seems to come from how fragile they are, how uncertain it is how long they'll be here. It was the use of machines and extraordinary medical measures that moved several of us to see how much distance we were putting between ourselves and the infants. Even if the machines weren't there, though, 
there was that tendency to keep it impersonal, to keep your distance, and you knew that it wasn't any good for the children, for the children least of all. So a group of us began to talk about it, to open up to our feelings, to decide to be with the children more. And when it got too hard and we'd break down, we'd support each other and, take, and talk it over. The more we opened up, it just became natural that we began this new practice of holding infants when the time would come for them to die. It wasn't a decision as much as something we'd become ready to do. So at the end, we'd take them off the monitors and into our arms in a rocker. And we'd sit with them in their final moments. It tears you apart because holding them, sometimes you can feel them go. And the death itself is different. On the machines, it's monitored as a brain death. In your arms, it's the heart and the breath. You feel 10 dozen things at once, terrible sadness because you'd become attached to the child, but glad too because their suffering is about to end. Maybe anger at the world or at God or whatever for allowing this to happen. And such empathy for the parents. And something like awe and wonder like there must be some kind of explanation for all of this, which you don't yet understand. But patience too, that things become more clear in time, and peace of mind because you're doing the best you can, and humble to be present at such a moment, all of the above, often all at once. So I love that story, that, that expression of metta in action. Metta I like to think of as a courageous heart, that turns towards life, towards all experience, including this very tender experience this person was having in the neonatal unit. And you can see what a lot of strength it takes to, to turn towards that rather than, uh, they, rather than how they described earlier, which was to sort of be clinical and removed and distant. It takes, it takes a leap of faith to feel, to feel the vulnerability and the, the humanness and the, 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 the pain of the heart. But also, of course, with that, we also feel tremendous joy and love and richness and beauty. So, mostly the practices of mindfulness and metta are taught separately. And yet they're very inextricably linked. They, in my experience, over time, they become one practice. The metta is within the mindfulness practice, and mindfulness is also present within metta. There's a teaching from the sixth Zen patriarch, one of the founders of Chan Buddhism in China. He said, do not say that awareness and kindness are separate, one can't arise without the other. Awareness is the foundation of kindness, and kindness is the expression of awareness. So, of course, in uh, Asian Buddhist thought, mind and heart are not separate, like, like we've made that distinction in the West. So, when we think about a moment of mindfulness, or a moment of metta, but let's stay, stay with a moment of mindfulness. What are the qualities that are present in a moment of mindfulness? Attention, presence, acceptance, interest, 
Mindfulness gathers all these wholesome qualities together in a moment. Non-judging, non-interfering, no agenda, allowing things to be as they are. And all of these qualities are the same for a moment of metta. In a moment of love, there's a non-interfering and non-fixing quality. We're allowing and accepting things, ourselves, each other to be as we are. That's the quality. Metta, metta is unconditional love. So it, it is imbued with these qualities of non-interference, non-judging, non-fixing, non, non-moving in a way. This is from Joanna Macy. She says, who's a Buddhist writer and scholar and teacher. The Dharma path strikes me as profoundly erotic. Not many people say that about Buddhism, but she does. <laughs> Buddhism teaches us to pay attention. And if you mindfully put your attention on anything, you find love arising for whatever it is, anything. You put your attention on it and it reveals itself to you. You may have had this experience this week where you get quiet enough and slow enough where the quality of attention and presence gets so rich and deep and you turn to look at something, it might be a spoon you know, or a blade of grass, these beautiful shoots of grass that are coming up in the hills. Or it might be somebody you know who's sitting with you, some friend you, you've come with. And you see them, see this thing, whatever it is, as if for the first time, beginner's mind, we call it. And there's automatically within that a quality of affection. Mary Oliver puts it this way. She says, there is nothing in this world, if I can pay attention to long enough, that doesn't cease to foster wonder and love. If there is, I haven't found it yet. So one of, the, one of the joys of the retreat form that we have, the silence, the stillness, the non-doing, the slowing down, is we get to taste, we get to intimate this, this quality, this union of love and presence, of metta and mindfulness. I want to reread the quote that I read at the beginning of the retreat from um, Henry Miller, uh, who speaks to this so beautifully. When he's talking about taking up painting later in life, he said, I remember well the transformation took place in me when I first began to view the world with the eyes of a painter. The most familiar things and objects which I gazed at all my life now became an unending source of wonder, and with wonder, of course, affection. A teapot, an old hammer, a chipped cup, whatever came to hand, I looked upon it as if I had never seen it before. To paint is to love again, to live again, and to see again. Or you could say, to meditate is to love again, to live again, to see again. So I hope that some of you have tasted this, what I'm pointing to. It's a very delicious quality of presence that's available to us. And many people have been talking about how nature's been touching you and it's, again, it's, it's one of the ways that we, we, uh, we feel this quality. The animals, the birds, the, the sunlight. 
this is from Byron Katie who puts it a slightly different way. She says, I'm happy to be this 63-year-old woman. I love that I weigh 160 pounds. I love that I'm not any smarter than I am. I love that my skin is getting wrinkled and loose. How many people can say that? (laughs) I love that some mornings I'm almost blind and there's just a haze of world I can barely see where I'm going. I love where my hands have been put and I love how I am breathed and positioned and angled. Reminds me of a line that um, the, the Buddha's attendant Ananda once said, as the Buddha was getting old, he said, Oh Lord, oh how wonderful that your skin that was used to be so golden and radiant is now wrinkled and flaccid and heavy. How delightful. <laughs> <laughs> that even the blessed one ages. <laughs> so it happens to the best of us. And we always have the invitation, can we love that or can we hate it? Can we resist it? Can we complain? Can we do everything we can to resist the truth? To meet the truth is to see the beauty of truth. Truth is beautiful. So another place where these practices come together, mindfulness is like a laser, brings about great clarity, as you may have noticed. Clarity with our experience, our thoughts. We talked a lot about working with thoughts and papancha. can bring great clarity about how we're lost in our mind, about the ways that we cause suffering for ourselves, the ways that we get caught in our reactive emotions. All the different ways that we, we, we experience suffering can be really uh, poignantly highlighted and sometimes quite painfully highlighted. The metta, the quality of love or the quality that allows us to embrace that is really the bridge that allows us to transform those difficult states. Because without that, the awareness can become very cool, sometimes cold or almost rejecting of our experience. And so it's the the heart that allows us to open to the pain, to the difficulty, to the struggle. There was a woman on the last loving-kindness retreat that I taught who just lost her son, teenage son, was very, very distraught. And at the end of the meta retreat, she said she'd found a way, she found that she'd found a way to see, found a, she found a way to see that she could live again. But before that retreat, she seemed like it was impossible, it was, it was not worth living. There's something about the, the cultivation of the heart of love allowed her to hold the pain so it was bearable, so she could meet it. So the Buddha said that the the goal of practice is awakening, liberation of the heart, or what he also called the sure heart's release, which is love. 
And so we can see through this practice that um, that this quality of love is an essential ingredient because it's hard. It's really painful to look honestly at ourselves, at our experience, at our minds, at our past, without a quality of loving nurturance and acceptance. We would probably be out of here if we didn't have some aspect of that. We wouldn't last that long. So I remember when I first started practicing, and this was true for the many, many years as I was practicing, probably for the first decade or so, um, I came into the path, I came into into Buddhist practice with a lot of pain, uh, a lot of existential angst and um, a lot of self-created pain that my mind uh, was generating. And um, so I took, I took very earnestly to the path, to the practice, but really the, what I took to was wanting to escape from the pain. I was, I was looking to the practice to, to help me get away from it all. Somehow, you know, meditate my way to nirvana and bypass all the difficult, messy kind of stuff that we have to deal with in relationships and ourselves and our, and our hearts. And so I was very drawn to the teachings of emptiness and freedom and liberation, all these great stories of these monks and nuns of old who went to caves and you know, attained nirvana. And it all seems so clean, <laughs> so precise. You know, you go to a cave and you meditate and you be done with it. You know, <laughs> of course, it's never that easy. And so, what happened was, um, over time, the, through practice and through life, uh, my heart began to wake up, began to thaw from its long spell in the deep freeze. And I began to see that it was really lit, because actually it's happened on one long retreat on the East Coast, and it was, it was where the, there was a sort of very powerful um, uh, breaking of the heart open, you could say, one way of putting it. Um, some of us who are very thick skin need to be shattered, you know, for the heart to break open. That was, was true for me. And um, there was a softening happened. And, but what I noticed, and actually was, it was also part of coming out of doing a lot of long retreats doing meta practice, was that I noticed that um, as the heart opened and as my understanding of meta deepened, that my practice of mindfulness became a lot softer, a lot kinder. And I was a lot more kinder to myself. And then, of course, naturally, I became kinder and warmer to other people. And there was, a, there was a way that my practice, the way I was meeting the moment was different. It wasn't so clinical. It wasn't so, um, there, was a, there was no quality of rejection in it, which there had been in the past. And I noticed that practice became easier at that point. Even though I was more open to the heart and the vulnerability and the suffering, that somehow it was more, it was more full, it was more whole. I felt less cut off. And the famous line the Buddha said once, as you may have heard, he said when Ananda, his, his attendant said, you know, I think 
the spiritual life. Friendship is half of the spiritual life. It's really that important. And I think by friendship he meant metta. And the Buddha said, no, say not so, Ananda. Spiritual friendship is the whole of the spiritual life the whole of the spiritual life, that we can't move through this spiritual journey without this quality of friendliness, of kindness. Just like the Dalai Lama is always saying, my religion isn't Buddhism, it's not emptiness, it's not nirvana, it's kindness. And of course, he embodies that so beautifully, so, so wholeheartedly. Hafez, the Sufi poet, once wrote, we are people who need to love because love is the soul's life. Love is simply creation's greatest joy. We are people who need to love. It's part of our birthright. It's part of our reason for being here. Part of the spiritual journey, if not the central piece of the spiritual journey. So I want to say a little more about what metta is um, and how, how it was defined by the Buddha. that it's different from the love that we normally talk about in everyday language. Oh, and I love to go to the movies, and I love ice cream, and you know, I love my new pair of shoes. You know, it's not that kind of love. It's not the kind of love that loves people because they like us, or they approve of us, or they love us back. It's, it's, it's all kinds of either sentimental love, or it's love as some kind of trade, some kind of attachment. The Buddha, when he was talking about metta, was uh, speaking about a love that was much vaster, much more unconditional, much more unattached to anything, any result, any payback, any expectation. He said, put away all hindrances and let your mind full of love pervade the whole wide world, above, below, around, and everywhere. Altogether, continue to pervade the love Continue to pervade with love-fulfilled thought, abounding and sublime, beyond measure, free from hatred and ill will. So I hope every 2.30 in the afternoons your heart is filled with that abounding love for all beings everywhere. We're going to test you at the end. Now, of course, the Buddha, like in many teachings, he uh, was uh, speaking about the ideal, the potential, the capacity of the heart to have that pervasive love for all life. And maybe you've touched that from time to time or periods of time. It's a very beautiful quality. Or maybe you've been on the receiving end of that, where, you, where someone has loved you unconditionally without wanting anything or expecting anything. And it's an incredibly precious and beautiful thing, partly because it's rare. How many people do you meet who love you unconditionally, don't want anything from you, and just happy to shower love all over you? It's pretty rare. Again, Hafiz, speaking about this, the boundless quality of the heart of love, he says, even after all this time, The sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. The sun never says to the earth, you owe me. It's an unconditional love of radiance, of light. 
So this quality of metta in the heart is the quality that wishes life well, wishes ourselves well, wishes others well. It's benevolent, it's kind, it's warm. It's a generosity of heart. It's a generosity of spirit that, that, that is, wants to give, wants to share, wants to dissolve boundaries. So it's, it's a way that we move in the world, that we look at the world with affection, with kindness, with warmth, with tenderness. It's also about connection. When we're, when we're connected to the quality of metta, there's a sense of connection. Usually when we're not connected to that quality, we feel somewhat separate, somewhat isolated, somewhat individual, and not so connected to life around us. And there's always a subtle sense of alienation when we're feeling that. Even though we may like our independence and all of that, our solitude, there's a sense we can feel cut off and alienated. And I think it's something that plagues uh, modern culture, the sense that we feel so cut off from each other, so separate, so alienated. I remember on the Meta retreat I was teaching last year, uh, a woman was talking about how she hates bugs and um, that particularly for some reason there was a lot of flies in the meditation hall. <laughs> and um, as is perfectly, you know, always designed this way. And so um, she, usually if you'd see a, see a fly, she would just swat it. And um, for some reason the flies had taken a liking to her and uh, <laughs> were landing on her a lot, and she noticed she, because of, because of the power of the meta practice, she couldn't kill them. She had to shoo them off, but she couldn't kill them because she felt connected. She realized that that fly, which was normally seen as a nuisance or as a pest or as a problem, is life. You know, it's, it's life living itself. Even if it lives just for a day, it's a life form, and to take its life is a violation. And when the heart's open and tender, with metta, then even, even an insect is precious. Similarly, on that same retreat, there was a woman who had been greatly burdened by the, the suffering uh, of her family in, who were living in Israel, and uh, just by the intense strife and the grief of all the conflict that's going on there. And so she spent the whole week doing metta practice to her family and to both sides of the struggle. And she said that she'd felt more connected in that, the end of that week than in years of being there, traveling there, trying to negotiate peace settlements and whatever. That there's something about the heart opening and not being divided allowed her to be more connected than she'd ever felt. So as I mentioned the other day, the, 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 the basis of the, the meta practice is the use of these phrases, these intentions of kindness, of love, of care. And it can seem quite mundane. May I be well, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, yada, yada, yada. Um, what's this got to do with anything? I hate myself, may I be well, may I be happy. <laughs> Yada, yada, yada. 
just like in the same with mindfulness, you know, we, you know, we try to follow our breath and we follow maybe half a breath and then we space out and we come back and we space out. Seems like it's pointless, mundane, stupid. What's this going to do for me and my life and my problems? And But it's, you know, it's like each moment of mindfulness, each moment of matter, you know, it's filling up this, this bucket, this rather large bucket, but drop by drop, seed by seed, something happens, something starts to change in the heart, in the mind. When we continue to wish ourselves well, rather than say that we're completely stupid, and they're a loser, and hopeless, or whatever else we like to call ourselves. So I, I'm saying that as a way of not underestimating the power of love and kindness, that even though it can seem quite simple and quite mundane, that over time, and I've noticed I've been doing this for many years, probably for 20-some years, that I've noticed how it transforms the heart in a very real, genuine way. This is an example of somebody speaking to how the heart can be transformed. This is from Thomas Merton, who in his latter years became very, became quite a, uh, interested in Buddhist practice. He said, then it was as if I was suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts where neither sin nor design nor self-knowledge can reach, the core of the reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could see themselves as they really are, I thought. If only we could see each other the way, that way all the time. There would be no more war or hatred, no more cruelty or greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we'd all fall down and worship each other. Maybe you've had those moments as you walk around the retreat and the heart's blooming and everybody looks like a Buddha. You just want to bow down at their feet. One of my favorite stories about the power of the metta practice is um, reading about the life of Mahagoshananda, who was a wonderful, beautiful, renowned Buddhist monk who was living in Thailand uh, with one of my teachers in a monastery in southern Thailand during the Cambodian genocide. And he, he's Goshenander is, is Cambodian. And um, after the genocide, he found out that all 17 members of his family had been killed. So when it was safe to go back, he went back into the country um, and Buddhism had pretty much been wiped out by the Cultural Revolution. They went from 600,000 monks to 3,000 monks. And uh, the country was war-torn and traumatized, as you can imagine, and uh, strewn with landmines and just complete havoc that war creates in the society. And so what he began to do as an expression of his practice and his desire for peace and for reconciliation was he would walk from refugee camp to refugee camp to village to village on the border, which was still very um, dangerous because the, the Khmer Rouge was still very active, even though the war was over. And he would um, just walk, and of course he would gather you know, many people as he'd go from village to village, and so often with thousands of people would be walking with him 
on these peace walks. And he would chant this um, famous chant that the, the Buddha stated um, that hadn't been heard for many years because, of course, anything related to Buddhism was illegal and you could be um, threatened with death for reciting any Buddhist text or chant. And so he would chant the chant, hatred never ceases with hatred. Only by love does hatred cease. This is the eternal law. So as you'd walk through the villages and the rice paddies and he would meet somebody and they would tell him their stories of losing all their family or their children or their parents, he would recite this line, hatred never ceases by hatred. Only by love alone does hatred cease. And so he would take this incredible power of metta, this loving heart, as his way of sowing peace in that country. So this is, this is one expression that metta can take in a very expansive and a very dynamic way. But I also want to talk about how metta is, is incredibly ordinary, incredibly simple, incredibly everyday, something that we all experience, we all can access. It's the nature of our hearts, it's the nature of who we are. So to bring it down from any lofty idea of what you might think it is, that we all know this, we all experience this, I got a letter from a friend today from England. It was a hope you're getting well, po- getting well letter. And she um, enclosed this poem, and it was one of my favorite poems from Billy Collins called Aimless Love. And I want to read this because it speaks so beautifully to the ordinariness of metta, the ordinariness of how we can fall in love with the ordinary. This morning as I walked along the lake shore, I fell in love with a wren, and later that day with a mouse the cat had dropped under the dining room table. In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress still at at her machine in the tailor's window, and later for a bowl of broth, steam rising like smoke from a naval battle. This is the best kind of love, I thought, without recompense, without gifts or unkind words, without suspicion or silence on the telephone. The love of the chestnut, the jazz cap and one hand on the wheel. No lust, no slam of the door. The love of the miniature orange tree, the clean white sheet, the hot evening shower, the highway that cuts across Florida. No waiting or huffiness or rancor. Just a twinge every now and then for the wren who had built her nest on a low branch overhanging the water, and for the dead mouse, still dressed in its light brown suit. But my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod, ready for the next arrow. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself standing at the bathroom sink, gazing down affectionately at the soap. So patient and soluble, so at home in its pale green dish. I could feel myself falling again as I felt its turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. So it's that simple, that accessible. We can fall in love with the soap, so soluble. (laughs) 
I think every time I take a walk here with this with this beautiful Indian summer that we're having, it is like we're putting our hearts out on a tripod waiting to be struck by the next hour of something beautiful and delicate. So as I said, the, the, this quality of metta is, is very accessible, it's very ordinary, just the way that we look out for each other, the way that we hold a door open, or the way that we don't take too much food because we notice there's people in the line behind us and they might not get enough, or we comfort a friend, or we, we hold a child who's crying, or you know, we call somebody we know who's, who's lonely. You know, all the different ways that the world is lubricated by acts of kindness. If, it, if that wasn't so, we would always be at war with each other. You know, one of the fun things about being ill is um, you get to be the recipient of people's meta. So um, when I had first got the bells, I was wiped out with this virus for, for quite a while, a few weeks, really, really exhausted and just couldn't function that much. And um, I made some new friends recently in the neighborhood and um, they took it on themselves to cook for me every day. And uh, they were gourmet cooks. And uh, they just bought a new crock pot and a new crock pot recipe book. And so every day I would either go down there or they would come up to the house and we'd have this little feast. And it was just such a lovely, um, you know, just a lovely, innocent, gesture of metta. You know, I didn't know these folks that well. Now we're this big love fest family that we you know, <laughs> love each other to bits and I bow down every time I see them. So it's a reminder of this quality and the, 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 the effect that it has on, on people. So back to the the innateness of this quality. This is from Alan Wallace, who says, it's like this. Imagine walking along a sidewalk with your arms full of groceries and someone roughly bumps into you so that you fall and your groceries are strewn over the ground. As you rise up from the puddle of broken eggs and tomato juice, you are ready to shout out, you idiot, what's wrong with you? Are you blind? But just before you can catch your breath to speak, you see that the person who bumped into you actually is blind. He too is sprawled in the spilled groceries and tomato juice, and your anger vanishes in an instant to replace by sympathetic concern. Are you hurt? Can I help you up? Our situation is like this. When we clearly realize that the source of disharmony and misery in the world is blindness and ignorance, we open the door of wisdom and love. And I believe that would be true for anybody here when we, when we, when we sort of uh, it's what, again how mindfulness and meta go so well together. When we get out of our own way, when we when we cease to be so self preoccupied and so wrapped up in ourselves, then what happens? We can actually see more clearly. We see each other. We see the world, and, and the heart can respond. If we're just wrapped up in our own thoughts, our own perpanturing mind, then you know, with things, life goes by. People goes by. People go by. You know, like all those studies that they do in the hospitals, of um, they've done it in various ways, um, giving patients things to take care of, pets. I read one story of they gave they gave these um, uh, I forget what the, what they were recovering from cancer. I think uh, 
a plant to take care of in the hospital. And hospitals are pretty sterile generally. And the plants and the, the, the people that had plants to take care of had a much massively improved recovery rate and they left hospital much earlier just because they had something to tend to, to love, to look after. That's why we love having animals because they're so much love, so much flow of unconditional love. And for me, the, that, that, that's most easily accessed, I mean, not most easily, but easily accessed in nature. It's often the place that we feel safe to let down our barriers, to feel more open and to feel much more easily connected. And so um, I think for many of us, the, 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 the movement to go out into the outdoors is part of that way that we feel that unconditional love, both from our own hearts, but also receiving, you know, standing amongst a grove of beautiful redwoods or oak trees or aspens. Sometimes we can feel the visceralness of love that's coming from the natural world. And one of the things that I think that we get from being in nature is how it doesn't judge anything. You know, when we're around people, and I've heard people talking about it this week, there's often the fear of being judged or we're being judgmental or there's a projection of being of judgment. But we go into the, into the woods here and the hills and all of that drops away because the trees aren't judging and the deers aren't judging you for being bad meditators. You know, the swallows are happy that you're, you know, you know they're, they're not giving you a hard time. They're just being swallows. And so we can, something of that rubs off on us where we start to feel less judgmental of ourselves. We don't judge the, the oak tree for being all gnarled and, you know, rickety and mossy and lichen-y and we just go. It's beautiful as it is, all wild and idiosyncratic. This student of mine w- once noticed when she was, um, during the winter, she noticed her, the squirrels in the backyard would always get really fat in, in the wintertime, in the, in the late, late autumn anyway early winter, because they've been gathering seeds and nuts and acorns and, you know, they're fattening up for the winter. And then by spring, the, the fat gets diminished because of the lack of food and then, and then it starts again. And she noticed that she also got, she put weight on in the fall. And we, but, but instead of the squirrels just doing their thing, she would really give herself a hard time, even though she would lose that weight again in spring. So it was a great teaching for her, of, oh, the naturalness, we can be with this without judgment. So I think most importantly, metta is an attitude of heart and mind, an attitude of heart, in the way that we meet experience, the way that we turn towards experience, just as the way that we can turn towards experience with mindfulness, when that quality of attention is imbued with kindness, with metta, with love, with acceptance, then it's a very different quality, very powerful. And I think it's often what we've been saying up here is when we talk about the attitude, what's your attitude to your experience? How are you meeting this moment? How are you meeting this moment of physical pain, of panic, of fear, 
of emptiness, of loss, of grief, of distress, of loneliness, of anxiety, of hatred, of jealousy. How are you meeting that? Are you meeting it with judgment? Oh, I should be over this by now. This is, you know, I'm such a bad yogi. You know, I should be feeling love and you're doing this meta, but all I do is hate people, you know. <laughs> Which is often true, and I'll talk about that in a minute. How would it be if you met yourself and these like, difficult experiences in the body, in the heart, in the mind with, with kindness, with tenderness, with care? with acceptance, rather than hostility or rejection. You know, a a woman told me once of a story that happened to her when she left a meta retreat. She lives in this neighborhood where there's one man who's um, sort of like the, the... the difficult person on the neighborhood. He's very hostile, very aggressive, very angry, negative, and is always causing conflict amongst the neighbors. And so she decided on the, on the, on the retreat to, to send a lot of meta to this person, just to see if she could overcome her own reactivity around his negativity. And so, so she did that, and then she went home, and she was walking by his house, and she had that usual contraction of, oh, he's, he's in the yard, what's he going to say? Is he going to give me a hard time? And this is just after the meta retreat, and he comes to the, to, the, to the front gate, and she's walking by, and he says, you know, I just want to let you know that I feel really bad for, for being such a horrible neighbor and such a horrible person after all this time. You know, I just, I see how negative I am and angry and, and how hard I make it for everybody's, everybody. And I just want you know, I'm sorry. And she was like, stunned. <laughs> <laughs> and of course it brought up the question about, well, maybe that's the power of my meta practice, you know, <laughs> sending all this love and kindness and acceptance and look, it's transformed. Who knows? That we don't know. All, all, all we do, all we, all we know is we do our work to transform our own heart, and then we trust. At the same time, I also want to add that sometimes when people hear about this practice, they think, well, it's a bit namby-pamby. You know, it's a bit kind of wimpy, be honest, love, you know, maybe be happy, be kind. And sometimes people get the impression that, it, that you... Um, Sounds like being a doormat. That means you let people walk all over you, and you let people, you know, abuse you and neglect you, or treat you badly, or talk to you with hostility. Or and it's not not about any of that. You know, meta can look very, very. Meta has many different forms, and um, both subtle and gentle, and but also powerful and radiant. You know, I think about someone like Mother Teresa, who had tremendous meta, tremendous love, and yet. And all the stories I'd heard about her was she was tough as old boots, that you didn't mess with her, that she would go, she would meet with, you know, the government, of in, the, the Prime Minister of India, and say, we need more money, we need more help in the streets of Calcutta. And she was very powerful. So just to say that meta can look in, can have many different forms and flavors. There's a cartoon that I love from the far side. 
speaks to this, um, the innateness, the, the inherent quality of kindness that we have within our hearts, even if we feel disconnected from it. So as a picture of the devil, the Satan, uh, in hell, obviously, uh, big fire behind him, and there's a whole line of new recruits sitting wait in the waiting room. And um, he's shouting, Mom, no! And there's on the caption below, it says, despite his repeated efforts to explain things to her, Satan could never dissuade his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. <laughs> so that's the inherent quality of metta that we, we sometimes can't help ourselves, you know, in all the different ways that we might do that. So to trust in that, to trust that that is your Buddha nature, your, the Buddha, your Buddha nature is inherently loving, clear, radiant. It gets obscured by all kinds of stuff and fear and judgments and conditioning, and, but our intrinsic nature has at one of its sources love. So, as we've mentioned, the meta practice begins with ourselves. And as I mentioned the other day, that's often not the easiest place to start because of our um, because of the way that we relate to ourselves, the way that we feel about ourselves isn't often very rosy. People aren't abounding with self-love generally in this culture. Usually a lot of feeling a deficiency and not enoughness and self-loathing and self-judgment and high standards that we never meet. And that was certainly true for me when I first started practicing. I was quite critical and angry and um, I felt like I was saved by the meta practice. It was one of those things that allowed me to feel some kindness towards myself over the years. I want to repeat the line that I mentioned the other day from the Buddha where he said, the whole world we travel with our thoughts, finding nowhere anyone as precious as one's own self. No one more deserving of love than our own self. So we practice, we begin at home. We send these wishes of kindness to ourselves. May I be safe, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I love myself just as I am. And then, of course, we feel nothing. (laughs) Or maybe we feel a tinge of something. And the point isn't to look to the feeling, but to look to the power of the intention, of the repetition of those phrases that are planting deep seeds and deep grooves in the mind. Oscar Wilde once says, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong love affair. So, it's a good endorsement as any for doing self-matter. Nisargadatta put it this way, when you know beyond all doubt that the same life flows through all that is, and you are that life, you will love all naturally and spontaneously. And when you realize the depth and fullness of the love of yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. So for some of you, this might sound insurmountable. Well, how can I ever feel 
You know, I've spent 20, 30, 40, 50 years not liking myself, beating up on myself, judging myself, rejecting myself. But it's never too late. And one of the teachings that one of my first teachers gave me said, just, you can never judge how quickly something's going to change by how long it's been around. So just because it's been around for 50 years doesn't mean to say to change it, it's going to take another 50 years. It might actually be close to evaporating. It might be close to be released, to being released. So I'd like to read this poem by a yogi who um, gave me this poem some years ago, who um, I think transformed herself through meta practice and mindfulness practice and had a very difficult uh, uh, early life. And um, as you can see from this poem, touched some very beautiful places in her meta practice. She said, drink, drink until you are swollen with the nectar of self-nurturing, beauty and love. Fill yourself with amazement and marvel at the wonder of who you are. Drink the juice of metta for you, for your own beauty and love. Drink until you are so full it spills from you, freely and gracefully. Drink until you are the nectar, the juice, until you are embodied heart and soul, and then you will be love itself. I love that poem because it speaks to the power of that practice. So lastly, I just want to speak to um, the, the purification quality of metta, that metta is regarded as a purification practice. And what that means is that it purifies, it brings up all the impurities, all the obstacles, all the reasons, all the ways, all the, the, the tendencies, the habits, the ways that we don't nurture ourselves, don't love ourselves, don't take care of ourselves. So as you sit down to do the meta practice and you feel, all you feel is self-loathing and numbness and boredom and restlessness. And sometimes what you're encountering is the obstacles. And that's exactly the, the part of the practice. It's not that you're doing it wrong. It's not that you should be feeling this juicy, cosmic, Hollywood loving life for all time, all beings everywhere. No, we work with exactly what's here, what's in front of us. So we see all you know, the ways that our heart closed, the way that we're not forgiving ourselves or others, the way that we may be conditioned by our own religion, that it's not okay to love ourselves, not okay to be kind to ourselves. Or we just come up against the critic, you know, the, the, this, that deep ingrained habit of the ways that we are harsh to ourselves. So mostly I want to say that um, the meta practice is a practice. Like all practices, it takes practice. It takes perseverance. It takes patience. It takes working with these obstacles. But to remember that the good news, it's part of who we are. We all have access to this well. We all have this innate quality of love, and it's imminently available. So I want to close with a story, and then we'll sit. So another meta in action story from Dr. Richard Selzer. You'll get why this story has a little poignance for me at the moment. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, 
her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the, the, one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. As surgeon, I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed. And together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself. He and this wry mouth who gaze and touch each other so generously. The woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. And mindful of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I'm so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. So let's sit for a minute. May all beings be safe. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be happy. May all beings live with freedom and ease. So thank you for your attention. So we'll walk for about 20 some minutes and we'll have a sitting at 9 o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.